Hi, everybody. I'm Rob Halford, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away hey everybody welcome to rock solid the comedy podcast for all things music both new and classic i'm pat francis and joining me today in the zoom room you know him because he's been the front man for Judas Priest, making music for over 50 years. He has a brand new book out right now called Confess, the Autobiography. Please welcome the metal god, Rob Halford. How are you doing, Rob? Hello, Pat. Hello, everybody. I'm doing great. It's great to be with you today. Rob, the nickname Metal God, do you embrace it? Do you like it? Or are you tired of it? I love it. Good. I never get tired of it. Excellent. Yeah. You know, the story behind that, Pat, is that around the British Steel album, we had this great song called Metal Gods with an S. Yes. And shortly after that, I'd get these little bits of information back saying, um, oh, people have started, your fans have started to go, yeah, Rob Halford, the Metal God from Judas Priest. I thought, that's pretty cool, you know. And then it gained momentum, and then it went to all, to all different places. And I cherish something like that. Whatever the fans give you, you should uh, you should embrace, and I've embraced it so much, as you know, Pat, that I've actually trademarked. <laughs> I've actually trademarked Metal God because I want to protect it um, for my beautiful fans. And um, I think the next move might be a name change. You know, you can actually legally change your name. I don't know whether you can do that in America. You can. Or you can do that in the UK. So I often kind of have fun thinking about what my passport would look like. Robert John Arthur, Metal God Halford. And that's, a, that's I think, one of the cra crazy things on my bucket list. Well, I think that would be pretty, uh, that would be rock and roll for sure. Rob, that, that leads me to a question. Where am I talking? Where are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles. Where are you? I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been back here since uh, I returned sometime in March after some great writing sessions with the band for the next Judas Priest album. Excellent. We had a wonderful writing session. We decided to take a break. I came back here, and then, of course, the pandemic hit, and uh, air travel and everything else is slowly ticking back up. But I, I still don't feel safe to travel, Pat. I, I'm hoping to get back home to the UK uh, for the holidays, but... Um, that doesn't look very, very secure at the moment, you know? Yeah, it's not it's not quite safe yet. No matter what people are saying, uh, it's not safe. So uh, we need you to stay safe, Rob. So you stay right where you're at. And uh, I'm sorry you won't uh, maybe miss the holidays with your family, but you can do this now. You can Zoom. You can still see people. That's what we're doing. Yep. I'm Zooming with my family. Like It's a great way to stay in touch. And I've been an advocate of all kinds of communication through this pandemic because of the mental uh, situation that, you know, is, is being born, born by this pandemic. Not only we have to deal with the virus, but we also have to deal with some of the difficulties that people are facing, not being able to be with our loved ones. Absolutely. We've seen these terrible things where, you know, kids can't visit their families and, and uh, particularly in, if they're in uh, 
in hospital or in in, in uh, retirement homes, whatever. So we've all got to chip in. We've all got to do what we need to do. And uh, talking communication is 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 primary you know you have to keep the channels open it's the key it's the key thing i like that you brought up that there's going to be new judas priest music because that was one of my questions and i just want to give you some props uh 2018 you guys released firepower and you guys nailed it i mean this every time i talk to judas priest fans this is in their top three or five judas priest albums i love it you guys how did you guys get the spark again? I mean, you don't set out to make a bad album, but you guys hit a grand slam with firepower. It was unbelievable. Thank you, Pat. Oh, what a great time that was for all of us. Um, we we had a feeling that we were making something strong um, as the songs were coming together. You know, that's what I love about Judas Priest. We're still ambitious. We haven't let our foot off the metal gas pedal, <laughs> so to speak. We're always striving for some new adventures. And... Yeah, you know, we talk a little bit before we make any record uh, just to give us a bit of a blueprint idea of what we might be trying to do. I think that's valuable. And um, the basic plot was let's just let's just really enjoy reflecting on the things that we've done so far. And let's try and put a little bit of focus on some of the more classic edged themes and styles of the music that we've made over the years. So that really was... Uh, a focus of reference that we kept going back to. And I think that's useful. It's like, my, it's like making a book or a movie or a podcast. You, you have to have some kind of journey that you're trying to go on, yes. you know, and um, we had a blast. We had a blast making, making uh, firepower, you know, originally I was pushing for, we have so much material and I was, I was being very stubborn. Like I can be sometimes <laughs> saying, it should be 10 tracks. It should be 10 tracks because I think that in today's world, it's more about playlists than ever before. That's true. It's playlists. But, yeah. but for bands like Priest, it's an album. This album represents who we are and what we're about and what we're doing for, the, for that particular timeline for Firepower. And everybody was saying, now we should put this record on, uh, this track and that track. And it was growing from 10 to 12 to 14. Mm-hmm. And I was being really stubborn and saying, no, that we're throwing stuff away because music, Music now is listened to more so song per song outside of a certain album um, enjoyment. Uh, but but the more I listen to the stuff that was, you know, on on the to the side, I'm saying, oh, we've got to put that track on. Yeah, okay, let's put this track on. And then it grew and grew and grew to be uh, how many tracks was it? Sixteen tracks or something? I, I believe so. It was almost like, uh, but for a fan, it's like getting a, a double album almost. But, um, well, that's what it was. 
That's what it was. And yeah. in the end, I acquiesced and I said, look, you're absolutely right. This is such a great record. We should celebrate. We should celebrate this band. We should celebrate some some this great achievement. And let's just put it out and let, let's, let's let our beautiful fans enjoy it. And they ran with it, you know, and it, and it's become a very significant album for Judas Priest by Powerhouse. It, it's uh, it's it's just glorious. You guys stayed in the, you know, you stayed with the the classic sound that we love about Judas Priest, but uh, you expanded. It was just, you know, whenever a classic artist released uh, or a veteran artist released an album, you never know what you're going to get. You know, some guys uh, do a great job, and sometimes you're disappointed. And you guys did not disappoint. And it was just, it was a thrill. And I got to see you guys uh, here in LA at the Nokia Theater. And you guys just killed it with Saxon and Black Star Riders. It was so excellent. It was a wonderful show. It was a great, um, great tour. Yeah. Every, every, every place that played, every, try saying that with false teeth, every place that priests play <laughs> is special and important. But there's always been a little bit of significance about, in America, New York and Los Angeles for lots of reasons. Um, so we, we're always excited about performing in, in L.A. and particularly in that venue, in that venue, because I've watched that whole L.A. live thing grow out right. of the dust because, you know, back in the day, nobody went da- to downtown Los Angeles. Nope. Um, so that's been a beautiful development and still and still grows. So that was a special night. And I'm glad that you got to saw us there, see us there. Because you could feel it, you could feel that, that that there was magic, metal magic in the air at that particular show, as there is in every show. But for the sure, one was just a little bit of a extra bit of a vibe. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 friends with Ricky Warwick, and he set me up with some tickets. So my nephew and I went, and uh, we were in about the sixth row, Rob, and that was pretty stellar. So to get to see you work uh, up close, uh, that's cool. I mean, you don't often get you don't often get the good seats, but that night we had the good seats. So, thank That's you. That's great. That's great. And Ricky's a good friend of mine. We love that band. His band. Oh, I love and, him. Um, and yeah, th- that's true. I mean, all of us try to get up to the front end because that's <laughs> that's a that's something that's that's going on that that is a little bit um, extra exciting. Yes, it is. I, I love that venue though because it's a big venue, but you. No matter where you sit, you've got the big screen. True. You can see the whole stage. There's no no sidelines that are blanked off, like you get sometimes in a in an arena. Um, and the so acoustic all all, the acoustics just, are great too in that they're venue. Great. Yeah. They're great. They're great. Yeah. And of course, it was it's pretty. It's always pretty cool when we go back there because that's where the that's where Richie uh, premiered his uh, his first show with Priest with American Idol. You know. Yeah. Uh, so he was uh, talking about that, uh, that particular time we went back. Good stuff. So the band members currently are still Ian Hill. He's been there. F- he's been there forever. He is the, he is the long, long lasting Godfather founding member right. of Judas Priest. Yeah. He's been there since pra- practically, practically day one. Yeah. Uh, the name has been in existence since 1969. And I think Ian was that was there pretty much from the from the beginning. So there's Ian on bass. You know the rest, Tom. We do, we do. We we we've got uh, we've got Richie, and we've got uh, and we've got Rob Halford, and we got Scott Travis on drums, and we oh yes. who's the other guitar? We got Andy That's on right. the other guitar. Pat, Pat. Yes. Um, the 
the great thing about Andy is that he's a very sought after producer. Mm -hmm. Um, in his own right, he's been in some strong bands, mostly the mostly the kind of metal that I, I really want to get my teeth stuck into the the, the black metal and, and that kind of extreme stuff. I love that kind of metal, um, but he's uh, primarily a, a producer these days, and um, he graciously has given us his time yeah. uh, to to step in Glenn's metal boots with Glenn's blessing. Because there's a beautiful story in the book about that particular day when Glenn, so uh, it was just a very powerful emotional day because Glenn realized it was going to be too challenging mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day schedule to do to do the work. And, and he's a perfectionist. Glenn has always been a perfectionist. And he felt that, um, that it was time to um, think about how we should represent uh, his a, a role in Priest, which of course is still a fully fledged working member of Priest. He's back in the UK now putting riffs together for the next album. Um, but Andy came in and um, he's uh, he helped us on the Firepower tour. Uh, the fans again were very gracious. They understood the situation. Right. Uh, Glenn was very happy that uh, that Andy was doing that, that uh, part of the work that needed to be done. He was also very happy that the fans had um, taken to Andy like they have. And so uh, the band goes on, you know, the show goes on. The show goes on. Will. So for Glenn Tipton, the uh, the rigors of touring are not in the cards for him right now, but as far as recording and writing and all that stuff, he's perfectly capable. So that's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, ne we never rule out the chance that, that Glenn can show up at any show anywhere sure. in the world, you know, and come and Come in and do even one song, or even just walk out on the stage and give <laughs> say hello. Away because everybody loves him. That's a everybody thrill. loves him, and so um, his music is there on firepower. You know, his music will be on the next album. Excellent. Um, so that's all good stuff. He's a he's a he's a hero. He's a hero for a for a man that's living a productive life. Right. With Parkinson's, he sends out a very strong message. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people might uh, you know they might want to give up or just do nothing and just wallow in it. But I think if you keep working and, and creating, that's going to keep you going. That's going to, that's going to give you more years than, than maybe you even thought you might have. So good for Glenn. Absolutely. I'm glad. Absolutely. Positivity. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. I'll, I'll send you uh, send you a good vibe. Yes, soon. please we, do. We please do. Yes, I will. So that, that was a question in a band like Judas Priest. Are you guys, do you guys stay in communication when Judas Priest activity isn't happening? Like, are you friends? Would you, would you talk to each other on the phone or send an email or how does it work? Or are you guys so entrenched during work hours and tours that you need a break from each other after the fact? And, and I'm not trying to, so, I don't want drama. I'm just, I'm curious. No, that's a very, very legitimate question. And I don't think I've been asked it before, or if I have, it's been a long time ago. But it's it's a it's a it's a legitimate question and an important one, and I'll explain why. When you're in a band, it's work. No matter how you want to talk about it, it's work. Yeah, it's like going to work at the office or going to work at wherever you work, and you're surrounded by your friends at work, and you're with them five days a week. You never break at the weekend, and 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 so on and so forth. So. The balance in your friendship and your work uh, relationship is important. Um, 
the thing about music is that it is such an incredibly potent, powerfully emotional a ball of chaos to some extent, because that's rock and roll. Right. Um, that uh, it's wonderful. I, I, I've always loved the experience that the priest still insists on that we all share one dressing room. We're not in different dressing rooms. We all go into one dressing room together. We hang out, we talk, um, we get dressed, we do a show, we come back, we di- we eat. It is very much like a, like a family kind of concept. So you imagine doing that for weeks and months and years and decades. Yeah. So when you do take a break, the separation is good for lots of lots of different reasons. Um, so we're not on the phone to each other every day. We're not emailing each other every day. We're not texting each other every day. But we do stay in touch. And I think that that's part of keeping this relationship that you have to maintain in a band, which is keeping it healthy, Yeah. keeping it mentally healthy, you know. And, so that's the way that's the way it works for us. And then I would imagine when you do come back together and you are back on the road, you cherish that time because you've been apart. So you look forward to it and it's fresh again. It's yeah. It, it's it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And um I, I, I dare say it's like again when people, when you go on, on on holiday for a for a vacation for a couple of weeks or whatever, and then you all you all get everybody gets back to work and you right. talk about your trips and this, that and the other. And in, in really, in the, the reality is you don't you don't feel as though you've been away from one another, mm-hmm. you know, because of the bond that you've created. Yeah. Um, but it, it is uh, all that uh, all that is vital to keep the band ticking over. All right, let's get into the book a little bit. Uh, Confess the autobiography. It's it's out right now on Hatchet Books. I would imagine when you when you go into writing a book like this, you've probably been writing it in your head for years. And you just need to put it down on paper. Is that is that how it was with you, or did you really have to sit down and go, okay, now let me see if I can remember some of this stuff? That's a pretty cool way of looking at it, Pat. Yeah, I'm, I've never really thought about that. I mean, we all carry memories, don't we? Sure. I mean, I could probably ask you a question like something that happened to you just as you went into your teen years, and I'm sure your brain goes ping, you know, <laughs> right, or an incident. An incident that happened that that you're not particularly uh, happy to use as a reference, but it sticks with you internally. Yeah, and that's and that's how we are as people. So, um, all of that stuff was kind of stockpiled in the in the old brain box, but I couldn't really have brought it forth without my confessor, um, Ian Gittins. Um, he's just a master of taking you along this trip uh, you know and we didn't do it chronologically we didn't go from day one to where we are now mm-hmm. some days we'd be in the 50s some days we'd be in the 70s some days we'd be in the 2000s it's got a great way of opening up your and bringing clarity to your story so yeah i mean People have said, "What? Why? Why even a book?" <laughs> sometimes I say, sometimes I say to to myself, "Now, Pat, why did I do it?" And and I think the question is, don't bother answering the question. It's just a fact. It's happened. It's out there, and the feedback has been phenomenal. I'm I'm so happy and 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 grateful to to everybody that's getting into the book right now. Well, I think everyone always loves to read a a, a great uh, rock autobiography. 
Uh, I'm so glad that this one's going to be on my shelf. And again, like I said, I have not read it cover to cover, but I am, uh, I am excited to. And, um, there's always in these, in these, uh, books, there's always the little section in the middle that's filled with, uh, some pictures. How do you put all these memories of your life into like 16 pages of pictures? I mean, that must be a task in itself. Just choosing I think there's 40 pictures in here. What pictures are going to go in here? My family, I, I just picture mad. <laughs> I mean, got, you know, some of my, some of my, um, my, uh, my, my, my nephew, uh, my niece, uh, even my brother, and he's 50 something. They all send it to the cloud now, you know, right. Or clouds. But, but, uh, my mom, especially, and my sister, always the camera. Always, always a camera around. So we literally have thousands of Halford pictures from when we were babies up until recent times. I've got some the other day from my my niece Saskia, who of her beautiful daughter, who is my great niece because I'm a great uncle now. After all, she's beautiful. So how do you pick the pictures? How do you how do you even try and make sense of that? Right. They gave me the task and said, just pick out the ones you like. And I sent them hundreds and they got too many. <laughs> um, so we, we had to we had to use the pictures as best we could mm-hmm. as a point in reference to various things that happen in the book. Gotcha. And that makes the makes the things uh, connect because Every picture tells a story, right? You right. just look at a picture and you, you wonder what the story is behind the picture. But I think we, uh, Headline Hashat did a great job of culling it and editing it and doing with all the right things to make the pictures work. There's a picture of you as a, as a I don't know how old you are, very young, but you're, uh, it looks like you're at school. You have a, a shirt and tie on and you can still see Rob Halford in that young face. You can see it's a glint in the eyes and it's your nose. And it's like, I love that picture. It's such a, it's such a cute photo. I'm my amazing photographs. I love them. They are. And they're in I great shape them. too. It's, like some people have yeah, old photos they and they're, they're like worn or, or what faded, but these are fantastic. So good. Yeah, for you. My mom would always, my mom would always go to the local store and buy photo books to put the pictures in and put them behind cellophane and so forth. Even those very, very early ones. You know where there's actual pictures of my uh, my dad mm-hmm. with his mom, my grandmother, and uh, so I love that stuff. Yeah, we, we were we were lucky to have have them in such great shape. Uh, what's uh, this kind of a cheesy question? I know the book's called Confess. After you wrote this book, now are, is there nothing left to confess, Rob? <laughs> Are you a clean? Um, are you clean slate now? Have I been, have I been absolved? <laughs> yes, exactly. Bless you. <laughs> I don't think I've been absolved yet. No, um, we had an enormous amount of material left over. Pat, mm-hmm. we we had hundreds of thousands of words that were left over um, because initially, when when Ian and I had the early discussions before we started work together. I said, okay, what's this process? I've never done a book like this, Ian. He goes, well, you know, 
to some extent, it's entirely up to you. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you just tell me what you want to tell me. And what you don't want to tell me, you don't tell me. And I said, well, you know me, you will get to know me. But since I've been clean and sober, this whole aspect of truth and honesty and opening yourself up is the way I, I've, I've been as a person mm-hmm. for 30-odd years. He said, well, in that case, let's just pile it all on, you know, yeah. which we did. And we talked and we talked and we talked. It's, it's funny, really, because... Initially, I said, "How many hours do you will you think you'll you'll need?" And he goes, "Well, I've written I've written these kinds of books before, and I do my research. I do all my research for my notes and everything. So it's about fifteen hours." So I said, "Oh, fifty. He goes, "No, fifteen. Hmm. I go, oh, that sounds a bit crazy, but you're the boss. Yeah. We ended up talking for like sixty hours plus. Yeah, I would assume recordings so. Recordings, because you know the Halfords have the gift of the gab, and. Um, <laughs> So we, we had a wonderful time and we talked and we talked and we talked and some of it had to be sidelined for legal reasons, okay. which you have to do. Right. Um, some of it was anecdotes are great, but if you have too many anecdotes, it takes a bit of the soul away right. from the book. So again, Edline Hachette did a great job in uh, in in the dynamics. I, I discovered Pat, that it's it's a bit like making an album, writing a, a memoir, the way that it takes you through your life and your ups and your downs and your ins and your outs. It's like the dynamics of the great record. You know, the sequencing is what I'm talking about. Yes, the opening sequence and then the, all the other stuff and then the the end sequence. So uh, they did a great job. But we have a lot of stuff left over which we have to decide what we're going to do with. Maybe when it hits paperback, maybe there's a, an extra chapter or something. But uh, it's you. It, it it seems like you talk about everything in the book. I mean, it doesn't seem like you. You're not. You're not shy. You're not. You're not uh, keeping anything in. It feels like you are. Uh, you know, for lack of a better term, an open book yourself. It's it's a part of that as well. Is the fact that you know coming out as a gay man. I think that once you smash out of that closet, you've got nothing to be afraid of mm-hmm. if if you believe in fear i think fear is just a, a concept you know because fear is just an emotion you know um but i think that that's also part of what made me into this person that i am now because i talk about the struggle i talk about the struggle of sexual identity in this like super heavy macho band and my trying to protect the band from um from what could have could have possibly have been back in the day, like exploitation, right? As a gay singer and blah blah blah, and the, and the possible possible pushback and and damage to the band because of the way that gay people were, were being treated through certain decades. So um, all of that is uh, is discussed in depth uh, throughout the book. So you came out as gay in 1998. Obviously, the band the band knew forever i assume i don't know yes i mean you're yes. that like you or said you're that close one. they all yeah from day one you you know what yeah. they're up to they know what you're up to but that yeah that doesn't um that has nothing to do with making music and rocking so exactly. uh exactly but did you did you have any idea though in 1998 when you came out how important this would be for fans of your music that were also gay and and closeted to have how do I want to say it to have this, um, to have their hero, to have their hero be brave enough to come out. That must made them feel, you know, so great. I mean, as a, you're a role model, Rob, to do for just 
doing something that people shouldn't have to do or it shouldn't have to be a big deal. But when you did it, it was very important. I understand that now. Pat, at the time, I didn't. I didn't, you know. And um, I could talk all day about LGBTQ mm-hmm. and the um, the way that we're still having to fight and battle and and uh, get to a get to a better place. It's funny. This is because today I was reading that Pope uh, Francis has, has recognised um, same sex civil unions. Yeah, which is unbelievable. I had a, always had a feeling about Pope Francis that he's just a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a great, great uh, many things that he does. And I think uh, later on, we're going to appreciate that more than now. I've always had an affection towards that man. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I've always felt good looking at him and watching him speak and reading what he has to say. So for him to say that today, as we're doing this podcast, yeah, um, is, is an extra good feeling. But And that's going to do wonders. Um, but the, the, the fact that uh, I did what I did and came out of the closet like I did was um, the, the the knock-on effect mm-hmm. was just fantastic. I had no idea, you know, the, the, the letters came. This is before the internet, right. or just just a little just before the, all that texting and so forth came into play. Um, and it was it was glorious. It was glorious. And and now you know. Yeah, I am a voice. I'm a voice for speaking out on um, for equality and for pushing back against the bigotry and the hatred that's still all over the world. And um, it's just part of it, the conversation of who I am. I'm not an activist by any stretch of the imagination, but I think I, I have a voice because I'm a gay man that's been through a lot of stuff and I can relate and I can tell my story about the difficulties that uh, that I went through. And I think it has some some value. It absolutely does. And uh, I kind of get emotional when I talk about it, Rob, because uh, our oldest child uh, identifies as being non-binary and gay. And so I'm, uh, I'm, it's, it's very important to me that uh, they're protected and they have all the rights that everyone else should have. And um, so it's, uh, you know, it's important to me. And I just wanted to let you know that, um, that it's, it's a, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. Well, so. that's very, that's very powerful what you've just said. Very, very powerful. Because my mom always said to me, are you happy? And I would say, yeah, I'm happy. She goes, if you're happy, I'm happy. Right. That's unconditional love. Love your kids. I've never had any kids. My fans are my kids. And everybody that I, that I, that I have in my life, it's just one big massive worldwide family for me. But that's so important. Love your children. You made those children out of love. Right. And so... Um, love you love your kids support your children give them the advice that they need um common sense but let them at the time that they become an adult let them be, beginning to become an adult and thinking like an adult give them your your love and your inspiration and and let them see that it's their life it's their yeah. life to live the way that fits into their person well my wife and i always feel like we we must have done something right because uh they came out to us very early and not a, not a big deal for me, not a big deal for my wife. And it was, um, it was easy cause it's not, it's because it's nothing. I mean, it's not nothing, but you know what I mean? 
it's I do a, know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And and this is another this is another part of a very cool conversation because for some families it is something. Yes. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Depending on your beliefs, depending on your own set of values, um, it is a big thing. Um, most of us in the creative world, including yourself as a, as a, as a writer journalist, um, I think we have more empathy. Yes, uh, to be able to uh, talk about these types of um, things, but um, but that's just uh, that's just beautiful and. Uh, I, I, I kind of informally came out to my dad when I was 13 because there's a story in the book where we talk about a book that I picked up from a local store, just a paperback, but it was a game, kind of a gay romance novel. I picked that up while the whole family was on vacation and I snuck it uh, into my little room in, in the trailer that we rented for the, for the holidays. Now, I read this book. It was beautiful because it was about people like me. But then I hid the book in the in the trunk of the of, of the car, the mm-hmm. boot of the car. I forgot all about it. So when we got home a few days later, I was in the living room watching some TV, and my dad came in and threw the book at me and said, "What is this?" And I go, "What is a book?" And he goes, "Yeah, but you know what that book is about." And I I, I go, "Yeah, of course I do." And he goes, "Well, do you do you deny it?" And I said, "No, I don't deny it." And his face turned to stone and he slammed out of the room. And we never talked about it again. Never talked about it again. So even at 13, um, I, I stood up for myself. That was, uh, th- that's amazing to hear that you were able to do that if you weren't, um, if you weren't getting what you wanted back from your, from your dad, that you were still able to stand up for yourself. So that's, that's, I mean, I yeah. don't even know, I don't even know what to say. Just, that's excellent. My dad, my dad came from a, a pretty formal family. I mean, you, you know, his dad fought in World War One. I. I mean, the stories his granddad told, my granddad told me, are unbelievable, unbelievable. There's a there's a bit in the book that I don't think went in there. I was as a little kid, I was rummaging around in in my my um, my grandparents' bedroom while they were down there cooking some some Sunday breakfast night there. There was a, a trunk in in a corner, and I opened it up, and it was full of um, World War One uh, memorabilia, including um, a helmet uh, that was worn by one of the um, German officers in in World War One, and a Luger pistol, wow, kind of handgun. And um, uh, when when my granddad found out that I'd been in there, he was he was quite quite angry with me which was an unusual thing for me as a kid because your grandparents are never usually like that with you and um at first he didn't want to talk about it but he did a little bit afterwards mm-hmm. and, and of course I, I understood later all war is hell that's a fact yeah but particularly that first world war um he was uh you know he served in, for, in the british army uh, in world war one which is a, a really gruesome gruesome war mm-hmm. um but he had those uh, he had those uh, th- those memories. So what I'm trying to say is, in, in the connection of of uh, how how a family passes through these different ways of talking about sexual identity, mm-hmm. sometimes it's very very difficult. Yes. Um, and uh, so who knows where it came from 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 my granddad's father, 
the world was a different place right. in 1952, 53. Yes. And, and, and I, yeah, we, and we have to qualify that, uh, your dad back in whatever year you were 13 years old, it was a totally different time period. So for your dad to be accepting of that would have been one of the most rare things ever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even though we say now you love your children for who they are and who they're meant to be. We do have to realize that times were way, way different when you were a 13 year old. So we all know that. He was protecting me. He was protecting yeah, me. Sure. Because you'd see it in the papers. There was a horrible paper called The News of the World. And they always had like a little bit of titillation of two men found having sex in a park and jailed for 20 years and stuff like that. So you're protecting your children. Absolutely. You know? I didn't yeah. realize that at the time. I did no. later. So he, yeah, he was expressing love the, the way he knew how. And that, yeah, and so, exactly. Well, Rob, exactly. we've talked about, uh, we've talked about important stuff. We've talked about serious stuff. And now I want to talk about music, which is still important and still serious. But let's uh, let's get into some Judas Priest. Uh, 50 million albums worldwide. As a member of Judas Priest, as well as um, uh, your band Fight and your band Halford and Two, you've made 24 studio albums and, and a ton of live albums. When you look back on that career and all that all that music that you've created... Uh, you got to be, you got to be proud. How could you not be? I'm very, very, very proud. Very, very proud. And, and all of that is, is teamwork. It's just this beautiful way that musicians get together. And when the chemistry is right, um, great things start to happen. And uh, again, you, you know, just to hear you say those statistics, it <laughs> blows my mind because I, I never really think about it. I'm always... I'm always um, thinking about the next right. opportunity, but it, it's beautiful. And I, I am very proud. I'm, I'm so proud of, of, of the accomplishments that all of us created together. Not, not, just, not just the band, but the producers, the engineers, the people that work at the studio, people that work at the label, our fans are at the top there. Everybody's, everybody's involved in success, you know? Uh, success is, isn't something that, that that's kind of finite with one one thing. Right. It's it, everything is connected to success, whether it's a book or a movie or a whatever. You know, everything is, is is connected. You know, Picasso makes a painting, but somebody had to make the paintbrush. You know, yeah. Picasso made the painting, but somebody had to make the paint. So true. Th this is a this is a, a really important thing to to understand that you're always standing on somebody else's shoulders. Uh, in 1977, you, you released your third album, Sin After Sin. Is that the first album that you feel that the Judas Priest sound started to come into its own? The third album, was was it Pat? It was the third album. Yeah, Sin After Sin. Um, Sin After Sin. It was our first uh, release with a major record mm -hmm. label because the first two were a small independent label, gold records that were distributed by Decca. Mm-hmm. Um, out of London and that label really didn't have much of an outreach beyond the UK the tentacles were a little bit in America and a few other places but um, we were being recognised and we were being um, discovered over and over again by people in the recording industry and that led us to our first ever album with Columbia CBS right. at the time 
And uh, they hooked us up with Roger Glover, vice player for Deep Purple, great friend of ours. And we made that first album. And I think I think with Roger's guidance, because he was in this world-famous, well, well and truly established band, and he produced a number of the of the of the Purple albums, he was able to kind of give give us his guidance and wisdom, as a producer should. Yeah, that's excellent. In putting the best, yeah, the best components that you have, and it's unusual. This is Pat, because, of course, um, Simon Phillips played drums on that record. We didn't have, we didn't formally have a drummer in the band at the time. Well, that's a killer drummer so, to have on the record. Simon yeah, Phillips is, yeah, is a list. He's up still. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he was barely 16 at the time. We couldn't believe it. You know, we said, he hooked us up. We said, you know, come on, we'll make this record. I've got a drummer. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and what, 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 um, what Simon was able to give us for the first time was a drummer that had this incredible double kick ability for certain drum passaging and, and transitions, which played a role in the way the music was being developed. So I think we were, I think we found our footing in, in uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, definitely. That's a very important album. Sure, it's definitely but, a growth from from the first, yes, from Rock and Roll exactly. to Sad Wings to Sin After Sin. Exactly. So by Sin After Sin, we were kind of finding our yep. feet, so to speak. And that's how it should be, because if, if, if you're not growing, then something's not working. But, that's uh, right. And, and, and most bands, if you listen to most bands that, are, that have had a, a tenure in Rock and Roll, it's usually by the second or the third album, things are starting to click and stick. Yeah, that's what I've found as, as a fan of you know bands that have been around for a long time. I want to ask whose idea it was to cover the Joan Baez song, Diamonds and Rust. It doesn't seem like a song that would, be, uh, that would go hand in hand with Judas Priest, and yet your cover of that song is classic. label in new york said that you know they already had the vibes that this this was exciting that this new band judas priest was going to make headway particularly in america but radio rock radio was going to be an important part of the building block process and um we have some suggestions of, of, of ideas for you to consider for certain songs that we feel we can get traction at radio with so as as then, much like we are now, we're always very open-minded. Everybody's ideas are thrown in and we all discuss it and think about it. And you go through the process. You never say you never say no. Right. Because if you said no, where, where would you be in music particularly? So we said, yeah, well, what have you got? So they, they sent us this 45 single of John Baez. And I, I'll always remember it. We were in Rockfield Studios at the time. And... Um, 
So, you know, we put the record on and we knew we knew of John Baez. Sure. First thing, well, she's a folk, she's a folk singer. You know, what, what's right. going to be? So we hear Joan singing beautifully with just her and acoustic guitar. And we kind of looked at each other and we go, is, is, are we, is somebody winding us up? Is, 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 is a <laughs> right. joke? Right. And then, because of who we are as musicians, we thought, well, no, they wouldn't send something like this without thinking it through. So we played it again and again. And, we, and then we go, oh, now we know. Now we know. This is a great, great song. And a great song will take any kind of interpretation. So then it became a bit of a challenge. Let's see what we can do with this this wonderful song that Joan uh, has written, and so we, we metalized it. Yes, she did, and uh, and it became such an important part of Priest's legacy. Now we cut to 1985. You're at Live Aid, JFK Stadium. Joan Baez opens that show. Do you get to go say hello to her and and thank her for that song, or had you met her? you know, in years following recording it. This is a great story. This is a great story because we didn't know who was going to be on that mm-hmm. amazing day. And I was uh, outside of the, the trailer with a bunch of trailers backstage. There's a revolving door of people coming in and out. And I'm standing outside um, just relaxing, having a beer at the time. And I see this lady walking towards me and I go, oh my God, that's John Baez. Yeah. And she's walking towards me and I go, oh my God, she's, she's coming. She's going to come and give us some, uh, some, uh, some verbiage of what we've done to her song. And she goes, Rob, I go, hey, Joan, hi, how are you doing? Are you enjoying the day? Oh, it's amazing. It's great. So great to see you. Uh, it's everything okay? And she goes, yeah, I just, I promised my son I would come and tell you that he said, Mom, I know the priest is playing on the day. If you see them, will you just go up to him and say um, that I prefer y- your version of John Baez's <laughs> Diamonds and Rust than my mum's? And I couldn't believe what my my ears were listening to because she was so, you know, self-deprecating the words. She was, she was so selfless. Yes. She, she was just being beautiful about musicians, having great times with other musicians material. So that, that song has become extra special uh, for lots of reasons like that. And just to clarify, this is the first time you ever met her. Was that the first time you ever met her right then and there? Oh, that's excellent. I'm so, I'm so glad I, uh, I inquired because uh, you guys were great at Live Aid.
Living After Midnight, The Green Man Alishi, and you've got another thing coming. I mean, I can't, I can't think of three songs that are going to please the crowd, but then leave them wanting more. So, excellent. That was a difficult choice. I bet. Very difficult choice. You've got three songs. What do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think we, by the reaction, we, we made the right, um, the right decision. The uh, the lineup is very strange. You guys follow Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> that's uh, that's a unique opener for Judas Priest. You know, um, Bill Graham was was a part of that great event, and he he had this great idea. Um, I hope I'm not making this up because as I get older, sometimes <laughs> sometimes I fantasize. But he had uh, this massive stage. But within the stage was a revolving circular stage so that as you were performing, the other band was setting up behind the, the backdrop or the screen. Gotcha. That's how it ran so fluidly. So when you finished and you went off, the stage would revolve around and the next band's gear would be there ready to go. And I thought, how cool is that? You know, the the, the thought process into making that uh, making that whole event uh, take place was uh, was extra special. But it was just a remarkable day. And Bill Graham had worked with you guys because in 83, you guys were at the Us Festival in front of a quarter of a million people. Um, I think Bill was involved with that whole event. It was initially yeah. uh, put to, put together with uh, with Bill, Bill Wozniak. Was Steve, Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak. But I think but I think Bill was uh, hired to make yes. it run as the best it could. It's great. It's great that you uh, that you referenced Bill because he's a pioneer mm-hmm. as far as uh, producers uh, promoters go. He really changed the game of promoting. You know. Um, if you've got a, it's a great book on his life that talks about the way that he felt that uh, bands were being kind of dismissed, you know, that they were, they were just some guys that made some music so we could sell beer or food or whatever else, you know. And he he changed the whole respect towards bands in, in a business sense. Yeah. And uh, he he, uh, he was remarkable, you know. He, he did so many great things for bands. That he was a reference. He said, the Bill Graham show. No, okay, well, I guess we won't get a. De- I guess we won't get a deli tray then, because just little things like that. Bands know that stuff. A clean yeah. dressing room, some towels, some uh, place to shower. It's important, you know. Bands, bands think about it. it is important, and when you know that your promoter is is making that extra, and these are before riders came into being, um, that your promoter is looking after you that way. It pays dividends because we always wanted to do as many Bill Graham shows as we could. And you're going to, and when you're treated properly, you're going to give your best. If you're treated like, you know, shit, you, you might not care as much, but yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Bill Graham, rock in peace, Bill Graham. Stained glass, 1978. Your favorite song on that album is beyond the realms of death. 
That's what it says in the book. One of them. <laughs> One of them? Yeah. 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 There's some great songs on that record. I have to kind of say, well, today, at, at this moment. It changes. It's beyond the realms of death. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very cool song because um, it was a song that was written by myself and that drummer at the time, Les Binks. So that's kind of unusual, you know. Yeah. Um, the drummer usually but, but doesn't it, get a lot of writing credits. Yeah, yeah, but it was a, it was a really, really good, strong song. Uh, 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 you know, the, the real definition of a heavy metal ballad. Yeah, with some uh, with some um, unusual uh, and and uh, and uh, thought provoking words. So it, it is a again, it's one of the, one of the many songs that that, that priest fans always want to hear over and over. You also cover a spooky tooth song on this album, "Better by You." Better by Me, which years later is uh, causes you guys some problems, and it was it was nonsense for for this teenager who grew up listening to heavy metal music, and you know being a a, a good citizen of the planet, uh, I never had any thoughts of doing any harm to myself from listening to Judas Priest or Black Sabbath, or ACDC. It was a celebration for me to be in my bedroom listening to you guys. So I don't want to talk too much about that incident because I, I always thought it was, uh, it was just nonsense and ridiculous. I mean, tragic for a, a couple people, but definitely not Judas Priest's uh, doing. So I'm sorry that you um, had to go through that, Rob. No, I tell you something, Pat. Again, it's one of those things that I, I personally will, will never tire of talking about because it's more than the music. Mm -hmm. It's more than the music. Right. It talks about your music being hijacked to a certain extent by Absolutely. a group of people that had an, had an agenda. It talks about um, the, the beautiful power and love of a of, of priest and heavy metal that these two boys had. It talks about um, the dysfunctional home um, setup. Right. Uh, it talks about their um, their kind of extreme um, uh, processing of, of how they use their their booze and, and their drugs. Um, so it's 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 more than the music. It right. also talks about so-called subliminal messages. It talks about the ramifications of if that judge had found for the prosecution the the inconceivable way that we would have had to have listened to music from that day on. Yeah, because every every record company, every every radio station would say, "I'm just we're now going to play Judas Priest, Breaking the Law." We have to add we have to add a disclaimer that if there are any, any subliminal messages in the song. We are not to be held accountable. Yeah, you know? What a drag so that, that would have been. All this stuff, you know, all this stuff, it's just, yeah, it was just mad. But we we fought for our lives um, in that courtroom because had it have gone the other way, who knows what the, uh, 
the further damage that, that, that could have uh, been created. Yeah. The only part I liked about it was seeing you guys show up in, in court in your uh, in your suits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even now you see it, don't you? I mean, it, you have to take this very, very seriously. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's very, very serious. And the judge takes it seriously. And, what's, and you show respect. You, you show respect to the court. You show respect to the court. You look. You look the way that is is respectable and formal, and you do it by the book. You you abide by the law of, of that courtroom. The thing about uh, heavy metal music, like you know Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, we see you guys on stage, and then you know some people have an image of what you guys are going to be like off stage. And then when, whenever I would hear the members of Priest and Maiden talk, you guys are just like English gentlemen. It was always, I just always love that, you know, and you find out Nico McBrain is going to go golfing and you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's, it's, that's the thing. I love it. It's, it's all, it's a, uh, it's a show. It is a show. It's a serious show because we take mm -hmm. our music seriously. Right. We take our show seriously, but look, fun, fun. Music is about fun. Right. Music is about pleasure. Music is about enjoyment. It's a, it's a celebration of listening to your favorite band or artist, or, or just especially going to a show. You know, I mean, even, even though some of the songs can be can be very very strong and serious, you're still having the time of your life. You know, so um, that that again that, that balance is uh, is important. You 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 have to know, at least from my perspective. You have to know when you're on stage and when you when, when you're off stage, you know. And um, some of us in in the music industry um, live both sides of the coin, you know. There's there's a there's a mystique that some that kind of manifests itself into reality, and um, that person that you see on stage is the same off stage. And I've got some friends like that in music, and I think it's wonderful. Sure, because they're they're, they're the embodiment of, of something that's very, very, you know, very vital in their lives. That, that they're, they're, there's just a purity there that is remarkable to me. I don't know how they do it, um, but but for us in in prison, and for so many bands, when you're not working per se, right, um, you do you do stuff like everybody else does, uh, playing golf. I, I, I played one round of golf in my life. That was in. <laughs> You know, in, that was enough in for Holland you. Of all, in Holland, of all places, in the Netherlands. And I kept, couldn't hit the ball for loving the money. And it, when, I, when I did hit the ball, it usually went, you know, in, in the, the direction it wasn't intended. And that was like, that's it. It's like the guitar. It's too complicated <laughs> for me. Um, but I admire golfers. I mean, I don't particularly like to watch the sport, but I admire it because it's an incredibly skilled type of sport. Concentration. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah. for me either. 1978, it's called Killing Machine or here in America, Hellbent for Leather. This album kicks off perfectly with Delivering the Goods. Kill 
I mean, a song called Delivering the Goods has to deliver the goods, and it does. Yeah. Oh, I love it so it's, much. Yeah. It's a party song, really, isn't it? It is. Feeling like we're going to kick tonight, you know, no hesitating and looking for satisfaction all mm -hmm. right. And it, it's a beautiful song. It's a real anthem. It's it really, a real yeah, anthem to it is. the celebration that we have in music. And then you also uh, you also put your stamp on the Fleetwood Mac song, uh, The Green Man Alishi. Because you're the green man Alishi with a two-pronged crown. All my trying is up, all you're bringing is down. Just taking my love and slip away, leaving me here trying to keep from following you. Yeah. I mean, I love the original, but yeah, I'm just too. like, just like Joan Baez's son says, I love yours just as much, if not yeah. more than the original, but it's just a killer song. Another, another, uh, another straight, there you go. A great song will take any type of interpretation. So mm -hmm. we were having fun by now after, after what had happened with, um, with Diamonds and Rust, we, we were all, you know, we were welcoming any suggestions. So right. the Spooky Tooth song and the, um, the Manalishi song, uh, you know, just great tunes. Well, you make you guys make these songs so much your own that, it, you know, back in the day, I didn't even realize they were covers. Well, I just thought they were Judas Priest songs. That's the magic. That's, That's the, the magic. magic. So much, so much music out there that that uh, that takes you into that different kind of uh, perspective of of a of the 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 origins of the song. You guys hook up with Tom Allen for the live album Unleashed in the East some great live songs on that. I love Starbreaker so much. starts to produce the studio albums. I think he does six yes. with you guys. First one is British Steel. And this is, um, I, I guess this is your first bona fide classic album. I mean, people love British Steel. Inside, 
he again is a vital component in the way the priest developed from the production sense and the songwriting sense. He just brought brought clarity to the songwriting, and he cut cut away a lot of the chaff. You know, mm-hmm. like breaking the laws. What two minutes and change? Yeah, three, three minutes and barely two seconds. Um, he brought a, 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 a real, a really cool sensibility to getting the most out of a song without too much waffling, you know, because everybody, every singer wants to keep going, woo, yeah, baby, all right. And every guitar player wants to be going, every guitar lead break wants to be going, well, how much of that can you take? Right. How much of it makes sense? And so Tom really helped us see us make sense with that particular record. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something to, to have a, an outside voice that's able to help you hone the song into the best song it can be. And if a producer's just letting the guitar players noodle and, and the singer just scat for minutes and minutes, it's not it's not benefiting the song or the album. So way to go, Tom. He was kind of like, he's kind of like George Martin is to the Beatles with you guys because uh, you guys work with him so much. Yes, we, we had the best times with him and we understood his concept of production and we really valued it and we 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 were not dismissive. We were not like, oh, we've, we've done one record with you. We didn't know the producer. No, he's still important and he was with us on the Firepower album. Yeah, yes, with, absolutely. Uh, Andy Snape and, and Mark Exeter. And trust, so, um, trust me, when I picked up the Firepower album and I saw his name on it, you know, in my head, my, my head exploded. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this yeah. is great. I love it. Yeah. He's always, he's been in the background for always, always he's been there for us, no matter what. Uh, <clears throat> you follow British Steel up with Point of Entry, which is uh, an album that in the book you talk about not, um, not thinking that you guys uh, gave it your best. Even though there's great songs on it, heading out to the highway, Hot Rockin', Don't Go. I mean, there's great songs on it, but as an album, it didn't um, it didn't please you personally. If I'm not for me personally, that's just my own observation on the record. And there are some really cool tracks. Yeah. But as far as as far as feeling feeling completed in terms of um, sequencing and everything connecting, I just felt that it wasn't at, at the place that mm-hmm. it, that it could have been at. But it, but that's the way it turned out. That was yeah. the time that we had allotted to make the record before we had to go out and tour again because there was a time in Priest's life where we were literally making a record per year. Right. We were we were we were really pushing and being urged by the label to 
stay out there, st- stay working. You know, keep keep the keep the the the, the furnace forging away. And uh, and th- there's there's definitely some truth to the fact that because of they're they're keeping pushing us, great things happened. Right. We grew as a band, but we also were able to um, to make these great records. I um I often ask a listener if they have a question for for uh for my guest. So this question, Rob, comes from uh Nate Treese, and he says, I'm a huge fan of the point of entry album, and I've always been curious. Is it true that Rob, Glenn, and KK wrote almost a whole album's worth of material for the follow-up, but then threw it all out and started from scratch once you got to Ibiza? Is that a rumor? Is that true? It sounds like a rumor to me. Um, you would know. You would it. know, Rob. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't discount. I wouldn't discount his question. Okay. Because many bands have done that. Many bands have done that. Many bands have had the second thought that that sometimes worked for better results. But I don't personally recall um, that ever happening to Bruce. Particularly at that, uh, particularly at that time, because we didn't really have much time to, to to really go for that type of concept. And a quick follow up, he says, was there label pressure to adopt a more power pop sound, or was that just purely an internal decision? Um, as far as where the band went with records like uh, Turbo, particularly, that's all of our own um, uh, intent. We've always had this sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. We've never been restricted. We've never been told what to do. We've always listened to ideas and suggestions, but the end results have always come from the place that we're at as a band, right. which is we're doing it this way. And Rob, do you write all the lyrics because you're the singer? Because that's that's what I always feel like the singer is also the lyricist, even though there's bands like Rush where that wasn't the case. I feel like if you're if it's coming out of your mouth, you want them to be words that you've written, or does does the other band also help with lyrics? Pretty much, Pat. Yeah, I would say ninety percent plus have come from myself. But again, even now, you know, when I when I make my ideas, I I generally sit down with Glenn and we go through it line by line, mm-hmm. and we agree that the the the, the message, the sentiment. Um, is represented to the music and that all of us in Judas Priest agree on the content. Uh, there's a there's a part in the book where uh, Glenn inadvertently, uh, you guys come up with the title Living After Midnight. Georgian Manor outside of London where we were making the British Steel album 
it was the former home of John Lennon and was now being uh, looked after by Ringo Starr, who bought it from John. And that was where we made all of the music for British Steel. And uh, my bedroom was above a living room and Glenn had set up a 100-watt stack. And uh, <laughs> of course. Glenn being the night owl that, that, he, that he is, much like myself, but it, this was just, you know, like two or three in the morning. And, uh, and I was trying to get a bit, a bit of an early nap because it was a fairly early start the next day. Um, I hear this music cranking away and I'm like, oh, I can't, can't sleep, you know. And I hear this, da, 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 da. What is that, you know? So I go downstairs and I'm standing in the door, looking at Glenn and Glenn's there, head banging with his hair and everything. And then he stops and he goes, oh, Rob, all right. And I go, Glenn, I, I'm sorry, mate, you know. I've got some work to do tomorrow and I really got to get some sleep and look at the time. You, it's like you're living after midnight down here. And he goes, oh, what a great idea for a song. That's a great title track. You have a great track for a right. uh, great uh, title for a song. So it, it, it's, it's, it's crazy how um, moments like that can be, uh, can be thrown into your, uh, into a song's creativity. Coming from uh, the UK, you always wanted to make it in America, I assume. Well, most bands do even yes. now. America yeah. is just part of the dream in rock and roll. You know, America still has tremendous influence in all kinds of music. So it was the biggest thrill for us to actually fly from London and knowing we're actually going to the United States. It's amazing how it ping pongs across the pond. Like bands here would look towards the British invasion bands, the Kinks, the Who, the Stones, the Beatles. And then bands over there uh, in are, are looking at the, the blues players from here, and it just it just all cross pollinates, and and eventually, hopefully, there's room for everybody. But in 1982, Screaming for Vengeance, after uh, after coming off an album that uh, was still a good album, uh, you guys really you really put your nose to the grindstone, and you and you break through big thanks to MTV. And because you you have a great album, Screaming for Vengeance is a classic. thing about that record as far as the way it broke through in america was that uh, another thing coming was buried on the set on the second side of the b-side mm -hmm. we didn't really think that much of the song but the label went wow this is it we have the track and when they sent the message back we were like okay you guys know what you're doing and of course history uh, speaks for itself that was the that was the breakout track yeah. for Screaming for Vengeance. Yeah, with all the radio play that you got from all your other FM hits, uh, the Screaming for Vengeance really just broke through. And I mean, 
the video is cool. I mean, we find, you know, you guys always made videos, but um, it just, you know, sometimes the stars align and this was, the artwork is cool. You guys, yeah, uh, then you guys artwork. use that, you guys use that style of artwork for the next three albums. And great there's, artwork. Great artwork. Yeah, I mean, there's great, yeah. Electric Eye is great. Riding the Wind is great. Every song in the album's fantastic. So that's just a killer. And it, um, it's it's a it's a really important record in in the history of Priest. You know, in 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 most bands that have had the the good fortune to have a long life, some records push forward a little bit more mm -hmm. than the others, and uh, and that was definitely the case with uh, with Streaming for Vengeance and Tom's production on that record is just remarkable. Yeah. It's it's, an, it's a very unique sonic experience. Uh, Pat, um, I'm, I just have to say that, that this has been great talking with you. I love to talk through the sequence of great records, and I would love to go all the way to Firepower. We're not going to go um, to Firepower. I, I, I looked at the time right now. We're Our time is up, Rob, but I wanted to definitely talk about Screaming for Vengeance. So thank you. Yes, it's a very important, it's a very important record, the way that, um, again, it elevated the band. There's no doubt that especially with that connection from the this incredible MTV experience where your band was in your home uh, and they were on a video yeah. and it was like having your own little rock concert, metal concert in your living room or whatever. Um, the, the, the way that music was shifting at that time, particularly through the, the MTV generation, as it was called, the videos especially, was remarkable for all bands. Yeah. But, but particularly... For uh, for metal, and I've always been grateful to for M to MTV for recognizing that, you know, to actually make a show called Headbangers Ball, you know, because they realized the significance of this kind of music in America. It wasn't just Madonna and Michael Jackson and Ray right. Lewis and and all of these other incredibly talented people. So, uh, but that part of the the way music was shifting particularly in America, and then, of course, it filtered worldwide, was very important. So, again, Screaming for Vengeance is, is an album that has stories attached to it beyond the music uh, one more time. Okay, Rob, before I let you go, I, have, uh, I just want to tell the people, the book is Confess, the Autobiography. Uh, Twitter, it's at Judas Priest. Website, JudasPriest.com. Go to HatchetBooks.com. You can read about the book. But buy this book. Continue to buy Judas Priest music. And one final question, Rob. If you weren't the metal god, who in your mind would the metal god be? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I've always had fun with this. I've always said that there was only one Elvis and there's only one metal god. So if it wasn't me, it was probably going to be him because I could talk all day about Elvis and <laughs> what, what he represents in rock and roll. Everything would have changed out differently, changed around uh, differently. The end, the end story, and the and the ongoing uh, great times in rock and roll would not have been the same without uh, Elvis Presley. Excellent, thank you so much, Rob. I so appreciated talking with you. Uh, you're fascinating. You have a lot of great things to say, and uh, the talent is it's off the charts. So thank you so much, Rob. Pat, it's been a pleasure. I've had a wonderful time. The questions have been great. 
Um, all the best to everybody that's been listening to us. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Right. Wear your mask. <laughs> do all that stuff. That's right. Yeah. Do all that good stuff. <laughs> and we'll see you when we get back out to the road in 2021. Take care, Rob. See you, Pat. Bye. Bye-bye. Hostage!